Morning, Nick. How are you? Good. We had the same problem first service. We haven't seen each other for a whole week. It's been cold. We've been cooped up. And so we just want to talk and talk and talk. Well, we are going to pick up where we left off last time. We're in the book of Revelation, chapter 18. This morning, if you need a Bible, these guys have got them raised up in their hands. They'll bring one right to your seat so you don't have to get up. Need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, Grab your Bibles out. Turn to Revelation, chapter 18. We're going to cover the whole chapter, but um, we're just going to start with reading the first five verses here in Revelation, chapter 18. I want to share that uh, this last week I had the privilege of uh, teaching at a leadership conference in Pakistan. Made it all the way back here and able to, no, I didn't. <laughs> we did it right here online. It was very, very cool to be able to teach and have a cost next to me and, and, uh, and translate and, and it, was, it was awesome. It was really weird though because, you know, it was at, at 10 o'clock in the morning their time which made it... Um, Nine o'clock our time, no, eleven o'clock our time in the evening. And so, uh, it was awesome. It was great. I was blessed. But we got done, what, at one thirty in the morning, I think it was. And you guys have remember last week at one thirty in the morning, what the wind chill was. <laughs> Ooh, it was cold. <laughs> but it was a blessing. And, and I want to, and we're going to, you know, I don't know, we'll have to get with the cost, but maybe in the next few weeks or so, give him a chance to get up here and share with you guys the work that's going on in Pakistan. It's awesome. God is moving. We're a part of it, and you'll be encouraged and blessed by it. And so uh, uh, we'll, we'll get to that in the coming weeks. But uh, this morning, Revelation chapter 18, let's begin by reading the first five verses. John writes, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was illuminated with his glory, and he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury." And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, lest you receive of her plagues, for her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. The title of my message this morning is The Ultimate Economic Crash. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, to uh, be in this warm place, Lord, uh, uh, to be in your word, and to be in this place where we can be around other believers, that we can encourage one another and pray for one another and lift one another up. And Lord, it's truly the reason why you've said, don't forsake the gathering of ourselves together or some, especially as we see your day of return approaching. We need this. We need the fellowship time together. We need to be in your word. So we want to thank you for this time this morning. Thank you for your word. We pray, Father, if there's anyone here that is yet to, to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again this morning, would you especially Speak to their heart today. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It was Saturday morning as Jake, an avid hunter, woke up ready to go bag the first deer of the season. 
He walks down to the kitchen to get a cup of coffee, and to his surprise, he finds his wife, Alice, sitting there, fully dressed in camouflage. Jake asks her, what are you up to? Alice smiles, I'm going hunting with you. Jake, though he had many reservations about this, reluctantly decides to take her along. Later, they arrive at the hunting site. Jake sets his wife safely up in the tree stand and tells her, if you see a deer, take a careful aim on it, and I'll come running back as soon as I hear the shot. Well, Jake walks away with a smile on his face, knowing full well that Alice couldn't bag an elephant, that a deer, you know. Well, not ten minutes pass when he's startled as he hears this array of gunshots. Quickly, Jake runs back. He's running back as Jake gets closer to her stand. He hears Alice screaming, get away from my deer. Well, confused, Jake races faster towards his screaming wife. And again, he hears her yell, get away from my deer, followed by another volley of gunfire. Now, within sight of where he had left his wife, Jake is surprised to see a cowboy with his hands high in the air. The cowboy, obviously distraught, says, Okay, lady, okay, you can have your deer. Just let me get my saddle off of it. <laughs> it's important to see things correctly. <laughs> to know that the direction this world is heading is not the same direction you or I should be heading. You know, in a survey in Discipleship Magazine years ago, the readers reported that their top five greatest spiritual challenges come from number one, materialism, number two, pride, number three, self-centeredness, number four, laziness, and number five, and number, yeah, one, two, three, four, yeah, number five was tied with anger, bitterness, and sexual loss. But the number one challenge for those in the church came from materialism. It's been said God created us to love people and use things, but materialists love things and use people. I think in the movie Wall Street, years ago, Michael Douglas plays his character, and he says, greed is good. But then they had a 2007 sequel, and the scene opens up, and Michael Douglas' character is getting out of jail, and he says, someone once reminded me that I said, greed is good. Now it seems it's legal because everybody's drinking the same Kool-Aid. And it's true. Yet here in verse 17, it says, For in one hour such great riches came to nothing. See, this morning we're looking at the subject of Babylon. While Mystery Babylon in chapter 17 dealt with the false religious system, here in chapter 18 it deals with the economic and political Babylon and its destruction in the last days. Last week we looked at the origins of the harlot of Babylon, the religion that will become the official church of the first half of the Great Tribulation period. After the church is raptured out of here, removed from the earth, during the first half of that seven-year Great Tribulation period, the Antichrist and the false prophet will attach itself to this false religious system. And a system that goes all the way back to Babylon and the worship of idols in the Tower of Babel the system depicted as a great harlot that is able to really lure the entire world into it. Because after the rapture of the church, what will be left really is just a melting pot of world religions. And all the problems that we see now that are blamed on religion, this Antichrist, or this beast as he's described, will ride in on the name of religion, but in the end he will destroy that religion in which he embraced. Because nothing, 
Not even religion will keep him from his ultimate goal of wanting to be worshipped as God. See, three and a half years into this great tribulation, the Antichrist will commit what's known as the abomination of desolation. We've talked about this before. Jesus said in Mark 13, 14, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let the reader understand and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The abomination of desolation is described for us in Second Thessalonians 2, 4, when the Antichrist, it says, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. So halfway through this great tribulation, his True colors are going to come forth. And I believe at that time there will be no more toleration of any religion whatsoever, even mystery Babylon. He alone will want to be worshipped as God and everything else will be false in his book. But you see, that's why the first three words of chapter 18 open up with these words, after these things, after what things? After the destruction of this religious Babylon. Now the focus turns to the economic and political and commercial Babylon and its destruction. Now, where is this place called Babylon? Well, some say that it's, it's probably a symbol of capitalism or commercialism as a whole. It's a symbol of the whole system, a godless system of commercialism. Some Bible teachers say that it's, it's, uh, Babylon is representative of, of Rome, a revived uh, Roman Empire in the last days. Some even say it's America. Some go as far as to say, well, it's the actual city of Babylon itself will be rebuilt. We know that after the rapture of the church takes place, there's going to be a huge shift in world powers. My prayer is that we as uh, Americans would see such a great revival in our country that when the rapture happens, we're all out of here and what's left is just a shell of a nation. If that is the case, then in reality, the shift of power could be very easily moved to Rome or Europe or to the literal city of Babylon. Now, the ancient city of Babylon, we know, is located 56 miles south of the present-day Baghdad in Iraq. And what's interesting, this has happened in, in 2019, the UN Education, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, UNESCO, designated the ancient city of Babylon as a World Heritage Site, recognizing its outstanding value to humanity. Basically, it means it's a protected site. So it's very possible that present day, the city of Babylon could become the center of world commerce during the tribulation. The city that was once surrounded by such great walls that six chariots could line up next to each other and go all the way around it, uh, the, the walls. It contained hanging gardens from the walls that were so beautiful they were considered one of the seven wonders of the world. But then after the destruction in 330 B.C. by Alexander the Great, Babylon became just kind of unimportant. That is until, if you recall, not too long ago, Saddam Hussein came to power. And while he was in power, he commissioned a team of brilliant Japanese architects to mastermind the rebuilding of this once awesome city. In fact, today in that exact site of ancient Babylon, before his death, he had reconstructed the southern palace of Nebuchadnezzar, including the procession street, a Greek theater, many temples, what were once Nebuchadnezzar's throne room, and a half-scale model of the Ishtar gate. Here's a, a picture of it there. We talked about Ishtar last week. Why did Saddam Hussein spend hundreds of, of millions of dollars on this building project? Well, first of all, I mean, he was paying homage to his king, uh, his hero, Nebuchadnezzar, because he was the last king of Babylon to control Israel. 
But secondly, more importantly for him, it was a way to compete with a much-needed tourist dollar. And his plan was to establish Babylon as the center of the Arab world, much like the United Arab Emirates is today. Yet over in chapter 13, it's prophesied that Babylon was to be utterly destroyed, never to be rebuilt. So this could be another reason why it could be a revived Babylonian empire in Iraq. The original Babylonian empire is not yet completely destroyed. There's some remnant there. Yet wherever Babylon is, whatever it is, it will be destroyed because we have God's word on it. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Four things if you're a note taker. Number one, the condemnation. Number two, the destruction. Number three, separation. And number four, celebration. First, condemnation. Look at verse one again. After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. And he cried mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. We know Babylon was the first great world empire that man established after the flood. It represented the commercial, the religious empire led by Satan and his influence on man. We know it's going to be the last world government, extremely rich, extremely powerful. It'll be the headquarters of all that is evil in the final half of the tribulation period. This great city will serve as the commercial center for planet Earth. In fact, the final economic capital of the world will make New York, New York City look like Branson, Missouri. I mean, it's going to be that different. You know, there's such a push today for a one-world monetary system. There's a push for a one-world government, a one-world religion, that once the Antichrist appears on the scene, these things are just going to be handed to him on a silver platter. But they're not going to last. The final ruling emperor, the Antichrist, will be like Humpty Dumpty. He's going to be sitting there on that the political, economic, religious wall, thinks he's got it all at his command, and he's going to have a great, great fall. In fact, that's what this angel says with great authority in verse 1. He cries out mightily with a loud voice, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen. Now the angel doesn't have a stuttering problem here. I think he's saying it twice because he's making it a point here. It's a double fall. There was the fall of the religious Babylon in chapter 17. Now there's a fall of the economic Babylon in chapter 18. And it's described in verse 2 as becoming a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit, and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Boy, how would you like that to describe your city? Where do you live? Well, I live in the dwelling place of demons, a place where demons feel comfortable. That's where I live. John also sees this city like a bird cage filled with every unclean bird. Now, what I find interesting is that in Jesus' parable of the sower, he also used the birds as a, uh, an illustration of Satan and his demons. In the parable of the sower, Jesus told us that when the word of God was snatched from the people's hardened hearts, it was by those birds. It says in Matthew thirteen nineteen, when anyone hears the words of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. So these birds seem to symbolize the messengers of Satan. In the same way when Jesus talked about how the church would mutate and, and uh, would include all manner of unsaved and evil people, he described it by saying it was like a mustard seed that had grown not in a short little bush, but into a tree. He said this in Mark 4, 32, but when it is sown, it goes up and becomes a greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. It's that abnormal growth with all sorts of evil birds under its shade. In other words, the messengers of Satan are sheltered in the shade of the church even today. 
George Barna, pollster, has said this, every day the church is becoming more like the world it allegedly seeks to change. Chuck Smith wrote this in his book, What is the World Coming to? That the world today is suffering from the gigantic commercial interests which exploit the common people, you and me. He says, big money rules. Man is exploited today by commercialism. We're victims of the satanic system, end quote. What, that's some 30 years ago, folks. But it's in the church today. And sadly, we find under the branches of what we call the church today, basically the same thing you see in the world. In fact, look at the reason for this condemnation. Verse 3. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. The kings of the earth have bought into it. Every merchant participates with her. Even today, we live in a world commerce that we can buy from all over the world with a click of a mouse anything we want, anything we desire, any time, night, or day. I mean, think about the commerce of, of, of Amazon. I mean, some things you can get it in a day. I mean, it's like, click, it'll be there tomorrow morning by 8 a.m. Wow, I just ordered it, you know, at 11 p.m. the night before. It's crazy. Or the commerce generated by Walmart. The commerce generated by those two corporations alone is massive. Now, why is that? Because people have this, this insatiable desire for more. I've got to have it. It's about buying. It's about getting. Uh, Vance Havner, who was one of the uh, chaplains of the United States Senate, said this years ago, the great difference between Patrick Henry and the average American living today is that Patrick Henry said, give me liberty or give me death, while the average American today just says, give me. And that's what the world is increasingly chanting. Give me, give me, give me. And they see the opportunity to have more and more and more. Thus the reason for the condemnation of Babylon. Covetousness. Like a poison that has polluted the entire world. All the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. All the sins of fornication, of the, the sexual sin. It, it speaks of idolatry. We looked at this last week. The commercial system has intoxicated the whole world. In other words, commercial Babylon played on pleasure, played on people's flesh, their desire for more. These were lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Listen, the world is constantly trying to seduce us. Like that first drink of wine or that first intoxicating commitment to sin, the world opposes Jesus and offers you more than what it can deliver. The world offers you pleasure and self-satisfaction, whereas Christ offers suffering and dying to oneself. No wonder in the end people are going to reject the lamb and follow after the beast. You become like the thing that you worship. When your focus is on pleasure and, and, and possessions and prosperity, what, what can I get, what can I buy? That actually becomes a form of idolatry. Demonic in its origin, and it leads to destruction. That's the reason why Babylon is condemned. Look at verses 5-7. through seven. For her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Render to her just as she rendered to you. Repay her double according to her works. And the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her. And the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure, give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen, and I am no widow, and will not see sorrow. It's interesting in verse 5 here, that in light of the history of Babylon, that it says, for her sins have reached to heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. 
Remember what they said in ancient times when they were building the Tower of Babel? Let's build this tower to reach into the heavens. They didn't do it. The tower didn't reach there. But here we read the sins did. And in the end will. They'll be so monumental that it will reach heaven. She also in verse 7 says, In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously. She glorified herself. It's all about herself. Verse 7 continues, In the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as queen and am no widow and will not see sorrow. Nothing's going to come to me. I'm in charge. I'm the queen forever. And, and uh, she's going to sit on the throne of this Babylonian system, worship luxury and pleasure. It says she lives in luxury. This means to increase your own standard of living while others go without. It's let, the, let them eat cake mentality. This means to make pleasure and things a reason why you're alive. Maybe you might remember years ago, Cheryl Crow had a popular song that sang, saying, all I want to do is have some fun. i got a feeling I'm not the only one. She's absolutely right. See, too, like ancient Babylon and, and the Babylon in the end, we're driven by entertainment, the entertainment industry. I mean, just look at the smart TVs that are out there today. We have one. Every app under the sun is there to bring us entertainment from every angle. You got Netflix and CBS All Access and Disney Plus and YouTube and Prime Video and then the list goes on and on and on. You name it, we got it. We live in an entertainment-driven society. People will go to extremes to be entertained. You know the average price ticket to sit at this last year's Super Bowl? Five thousand dollars a seat. And and people paid it. We're an entertainment driven society and we will pay whatever to fulfill that desire but it all goes back to covetousness it goes back to greed which leads to the condemnation which then will lead to point number two its destruction look at verses 8 through 10 therefore her plagues will come in one day death and mourning and famine she will be utterly burned with fire for strong is the lord god who judges her the kings of the earth who committed fornication and lived luxuriously with her will weep and lament for her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, the great city of Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour your judgment has come. The complete destruction of a city like Babylon taking place in just one hour, I mean, the only explanation can be something like that of a nuclear exchange. Because the fallout that it would cause would cause men to stand at a distance in fear of her torment. But look what they're crying about. Look at verse 11. And the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys her merchandise anymore. Notice it's not, oh, those poor people that were just destroyed, those poor people that just died. Oh, no, no, Babylon, they're, they're just wiped out, they're killed. No. Her money. No one buys her merchandise anymore. We can't buy what we want anymore. Our, our economy, the world economy is wiped out. And then, as you read the description of the destruction of Babylon, in verses 12 to 13, it almost sounds like a floor-by-floor look at a huge department store. You know, you're in an elevator, and then you go, and it says these things, more like Macy's or J.C. Penney's. Follow along with me, verses 12 to 13, with the merchandise. First floor, verse 12, jewelry, it says, merchandise of gold and silver, precious stones and pearls. Second floor, clothing. Fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet. Third floor, home furnishings. Every kind of citron wood, every kind of object of ivory, every kind of object of most precious wood, bronze, iron and marble. Fourth floor, cosmetics. Verse 13, cinnamon and incense, fragrant oil and frankincense. 
Fifth floor, it's the food court. Wine and oil, fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep. Sixth floor is the automotive department, horses and chariots. Then I would have to say the basement is the adult bookstore, which at the end of verse 13 is the bodies and souls of men. But if you look over this list, notice that not one of these things that are destroyed are things that deal with life's necessities. They're all luxuries. See, Babylon specializes in materialism gone mad. And they're crying over the fact that it's all gone. And they go on crying. Look at verses 14 through 19. The fruit that you so long for is gone from you, and all the things which are rich and splendid have gone from you, and you shall find them no more at all. The merchants of these things who became rich by her will stand at a distance for fear of her torment, weeping and welling, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who travel by ship, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What is like this great city? They threw dust in their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which we all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. I can't help but read these things and see that America is written all over it. Certainly we are guilty of the same sins that Babylon will be judged for. And that's why there are those who say that that Babylon is America. We do know that our country was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. And people point to verse 23 as proof that America will be Babylon. After the rapture, verse 23 says, The light of the lamp shall not shine in you anymore, and the voice of the bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you anymore. Jesus is the bridegroom, the church is his bride. Once we're out of here, uh, and raptured, all that's left in America will be greed and, and pleasure. Verse 23 continues, For your merchants were the great men of the earth. Now, some of the wealthiest men have come from America. The Rockefellers, the, the Kennedys, the, the Carnegies. In fact, the three top richest people in the world, men of the world, as of January 19, 2021, Elon Musk, CEO and co-founder of Tesla, Net worth $197 billion lives in Austin, Texas. Amazon's Jeff Bezos, net worth $182 billion lives in Seattle, Washington. And Microsoft Bill Gates, now worth $132 billion lives in Medina, Washington. Interesting, verse 23 goes on to say, By your sorcery all the nations were deceived. The word translated sorcery in the Greek is pharmakia, where we get our English word drugs, pharmacy, if anything, America's caught the entire world in a web of drugs for everything under the sun. Oh, you sneeze, take this pill. Oh, you're not happy? Here, take this pill, you'll be happy. Oh, you're sad? Here, take this pill, you'll be happy. <laughs> Too happy? Well, you need this pill. Yeah, I mean, it's ridiculous. And then no doubt many nations produce mass quantities of dangerous drugs to be smuggled into the United States where billions of dollars are made annually from the sale of those drugs. So do I think that Babylon is America? No, I don't. But the commercial system we represent certainly fits the description pretty well. I mean, wouldn't you say so? Except for verse 24. Look at verse 24. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and all of those who were slain on the earth. That certainly sounds like Rome to me. Personally, I kind of lean towards it being a commercial system that collapses, but it does say the word city 
over and over again. Verse 18, what is like this great city? Verse 19, alas, alas, that great city. And verse 21, that great city Babylon shall be thrown down. So whether it's a commercial system that collapses or the actual city of Babylon in Iraq or it's a revived Roman Empire, what is clearly seen in all of this is that America is strangely absent. Could it be that God has judged America earlier for the same things He's going to judge Babylon for? And we would have collapsed as a mighty nation or worship been destroyed? Man, I hope not. But it's a possibility. The sins of Babylon are all here. Self-pride, complacency. The ancient city of Babylon in Scripture epitomizes man's attempt to live independent of God. Sounds like where we're at today. There's a great historian from the 1770s by the name of Edward Gibbon. He outlined five reasons why the Roman civilization died. And, and listen to these things. Number one, he said, the family unit breaks down. Marriage and family is both a religious institution and the civil unit of order. The dignity and the sanctity of a family form the basis of human, of human society. So the family unit breaks down. Number two, he says, 1770s. Taxes are raised in an ever-increasing ways. This increases makes public money available for free services to the general population. And Rome meant free bread and circuses, food and entertainment for Rome citizens. This became a perceived not only as a right and an entitlement, but a part of Rome's national interest and security. Number three, the Roman population developed an insane craze for pleasure. Sporting events became more dramatic and dangerous with each passing year. The gladiator games became more violent and more brutal. Number four, Roman embarked on creating and maintaining the largest military machine on the earth. Real threat existed on the empire's borders, but a greater threat emerged with the decay of individual responsibility. And number five, the decay of religious life among the masses, faith faded into mere form, losing touch with life, losing power to guide people, end quote. I think one of the things that, that typifies our country is insane craze for pleasure, luxuries, clothes, cars, and things. What can I buy? How much will my payment be? Not that any of these things are bad in and of themselves, but when our focus is off of our God, who provides for our every need and always on what we can get for myself, what I want, what I think I need to have, then my priority's out of order. It's been said that the only reason a great many American families don't own an elephant is that they've never been offered an elephant for a dollar down and easily monthly payments. Over in Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 13, Jesus was approached by a man. And it says there that one from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, the Jewish tradition had a great way of dividing inheritances. If there were two brothers, it was a responsibility of the older brother to divide it up, but it was the, the responsibility of the younger one to pick which one he wants. So, I mean, you could do that, moms, if you have kids and you have a candy bar, let the older one break it in half and the younger one can pick which one he wants. Anyway, it was a very fair way to divide an inheritance, but in this case, in Luke's Gospel, something went wrong. This inheritance wasn't divided properly, but Jesus answers to the man in verse 14 and says, But he said to man, Who made me a judge or an arbitrator over you? In other words, Jesus is saying, This is not what I'm about. See, Jesus knew the real problem wasn't financial, wasn't technical, it wasn't legal, it was spiritual. The issue wasn't a matter of money, but it was a matter of the heart because both men were covetous. They were covetous. Francis of Assisi Quote, I've heard confessions of every sin imaginable, but I've never heard a man confess the sin of covetousness. 
What is covetousness? It's wanting more than what you already have. Whether it concerns power or pleasure or clothes or cars or houses or hobbies, covetousness has the attitude that says, what I have isn't good enough. I just need a little bit more. Then I'll be happy. Jesus, knowing this, said this in Luke 12, verse 15, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for once life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. There's a story that goes of a young man that said to his girlfriend, I can't promise you a yacht or a big house or Rolex or Rolls Royce like Johnny Green could, but I can promise you all my love. I love you too, answered the girlfriend. But tell me more about this guy named Johnny Green. See, life is not about our possessions. That's why in verse 17, for in one hour such great riches came to nothing. And we need to be reminded that the things of this present world are not in what life consists. Someone that is laying up treasures for himself on this earth does not understand what eternity is going to be like. I mean, think about this. What would happen if we lived in such a way that if we knew the Lord was going to come back, let's say in six months, And we said, listen, since Babylon is going to be destroyed, burned, why don't I do something radical for the next six months? I'm going to prepare for eternity. I'm going to use whatever I have on this earth for God's glory by giving it away or sharing it with others. You know, if that truly was our mindset, would gladly lend your neighbor that snow shovel or your car to your friend or your pastor that condo in Hawaii? Just kidding. Obviously, we need to use wisdom because there would be those that say, okay, you, you go ahead, you live like the Lord's coming back, and I'll take this, and I'll take that of yours, and I'll take that of yours. It's all going to burn anyway, so let me have it. They have to use wisdom. But my point is, it is not wrong to have possessions as long as my possessions don't have you. Nothing wrong in having material possessions, but it becomes wrong when we hold on to them too tightly because of fear of losing them. After all, what did Jesus say in Luke twelve thirty two? Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What is the kingdom? Paul says in Romans fourteen seven that it's not meat or drink, but righteousness, peace, joy. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you. Jesus said in Luke twelve thirty three and thirty four, sell what you have, give alms, provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches nor moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Folks, we need to untangle our hearts from the things of Babylon and focus them on the things of heaven, storing up our treasures in heaven, helping people out, doing whatever we can to be as generous as we possibly can be. That's the way we set our hearts on heaven and off of Babylon, not by building bigger barns, but by becoming bigger people in light of eternity. Paul understood this so well and why he passes truth on to young Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17-19. He said this, Command those who are rich in this present age. Man, that's all of us who have roof over our heads and food on the table, have a single car in the garage. That makes us rich in this present age. He goes on, Command them not to be haughty nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Don't trust your money. Don't live for it, but rather trust in God who gives us all things to enjoy and live for Him. Verse 18 and 19, Let them do good, that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, what they may lay hold on 
that they may lay, lay hold on eternal life. Willing to share that means willing to open up your home, your heart, your possessions, to be as generous as you possibly could be with everyone that the Lord sends your way. So, Babylon here in Revelation 18 could be in Iraq, could be Rome, could be even in America, but that doesn't mean we have to be a part of it. And that leads us to point number three, separation. Back up to verse four. We'll read it again. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins, unless you receive of her plagues. Now this voice from heaven is speaking to those who will become Christians during the Great Tribulation period. We know since chapter 4, the church is in heaven. But the Lord is still in the business of saving souls. And in every age, God calls His people to be separate from the world. Remember, Abraham was called to leave Ur, his family, go to a land that God would show him. Children of Israel were told to separate from the nations to leave Egypt. The church, we the people of God are called and commanded to separate ourselves from that which is ungodly. Even people, Romans 6.17, Now I urge you, brethren, notice those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned and avoid them. Here's the reason for the separation. To avoid impurity. Listen, God wants us to avoid the pollution of this world. Paul told Timothy, do not share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. 1 Timothy 5.22 Do not share. Don't be joint partners. Rather, we're to be partners with Christ. Understand, our citizenship is not in this world. It's in heaven. And we need to live our lives in such a way that that's evident in our lives. Again, we need to untangle our hearts from the things of this world and separate ourselves from the things of the world. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. I put it in our bullet today. It says it all under the seal. It says, Let the separation between you and the world be final and irreversible. Say, Here I go for Christ and His cross, for the faith of the Bible, for the laws of God, for holiness, for trust in Jesus, and never will I go back, come what may. I love that. You know, God has put up with a lot of junk from this evil economic system, but His wrath, His judgment is going to come. God tells us this world economic system is going to collapse. Now, we may experience some, some burps of economic hardships and bumps along the way, but it's nothing, as I said, compared to this economic crisis that will take place. That brings us to our last point, number four, the celebration. Look at verses 20 through 24. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city of Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more. The sound of the harpists, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters shall not be heard in you any more. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you any more. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you any more. The light of a lamp shall not shine in you any more. And the voice of a bridegroom and bride shall not be heard in you any more. For your merchants were the great men of the earth, for by your sorcery all the nations were deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and saints and all who were slain on the earth. In contrast to the lament of the kings and merchants is the rejoicing of heaven's inhabitants that the Babylon has fallen. In fact, verse 20, we are commanded to rejoice at the overflow of Babylon. This description of Babylon's losses indicates to us that both the, the, the luxuries and the necessities are going to be destroyed, removed. Music, manufacturing, work, weddings will come to a violent end. Folks, as we close... As we started the study, it's so important that we see as God's people look at these events from God's point of view that we see clearly. 
Heaven is, uh, or rather, earth is lamenting, heaven is rejoicing. Who's celebrating? Who's rejoicing? Well, we already met them in chapters 4 and 5, right? Four living creatures, 24 elders, tribulation saints, those who are martyred, this innumerable host that come out of the great tribulation, they're singing. They're rejoicing. Now, when you read that, you think, well, that, that's kind of harsh, isn't it? I, I mean, with all the sad lamenting on earth, heaven is rejoicing. But you know what? I think if you're a Christian, you understand that. I think if you're a Christian, you have no problem understanding this. You know, one of my favorite TV shows, I've shared this before, is the original Texas Walker TV series. In the beginning of that show, I, I mean, there's so much injustice going on that you want to turn off the TV because you're so frustrated by it. But it's just at the right time, at the right moment, Chuck Norris shows up. Texas Walker. He comes in the scene and defeats the bad guy. Justice is finally served. And you go, yeah, all right, you get him, Chuck. Justice is served. This is what it's going to be like only on a grand scale. After all, the gospel, Jesus Christ have been humiliated for so long. God's children have been persecuted on this earth. Those, his children for long enough. They've endured the, 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 the uh, just injustices. Uh, uh, you know, they've had enough abuse. It's over. So heaven is rejoicing. No more wickedness. Listen, during the last, or first half of the tribulation, as the beast rises to power, religious, economic, political Babylon will work together to oppose the Lord and His people. It will seem like well, God doesn't care or that He's unaware. But listen, just at the right time, the right place, the Lord will vindicate His people and destroy both the harlot, as we looked at last week, and the great city. God is patient with His enemies. But when He does begin to work, He acts suddenly and He acts Thoroughly. And at this point in our study, the religious, political, and economic system of the beast has at last been destroyed. All that remains, we're going to be looking at this in the coming weeks, is for Jesus Christ to come down from heaven and personally meet and defeat the beast and his armies. This he will do and he will establish his kingdom upon this earth. As we close, I found this illustration from the book called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made by Paul Brand. It's a prayer and it goes like this. Dear Lord, I've been rereading the record of the rich young ruler and it's obviously wrong choice. But it has sent me thinking, no matter how much wealth he had, he could not ride in a car, have any surgery, turn on a light, buy penicillin, hear a pipe organ, watch TV, wash dishes in running water, type a letter, mow a lawn, fly in an airplane, sleep on an inner spring mattress, or talk on the phone. If he was rich, then what am I? Listen, you're either a citizen of Babylon or citizen of heaven. You either are taken by the world system, or you are a member of and a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Your name is either written in the rolls, book, the rolls of God's book, the book of the Lamb, or it's in the customer logs of Babylon. But I'm not saying you, 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 that you can't be a Christian and be involved in commerce. That's ridiculous. The idea here is loving the system that would cause you to turn away from God, loving and exalting yourself over the things of the Spirit of God. Folks, this world is not our home. We're just passing through. Let us live in light of eternity. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, as we see uh, all the injustices in this world finally come to an end, we rejoice that it's done. We rejoice that it's through. Lord, we don't rejoice over the, 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 the souls that have died, Lord, that not knowing you. Lord, that breaks our heart. 
Because it breaks your heart, Lord. Your word says you're not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. But Father, we recognize that that will not happen in the last days, that they will people refuse to come to repentance. We've read it over and over again. But Lord, now is the time for this age of grace that we can come, we can repent of our sin and come to you. Lord, I pray. I mean, I confess myself. Well, this covetousness, I see things, oh, I'd, I'd like to have that. I'd, I wouldn't mind having that. And covetousness can creep in. I think it can in all of our lives. Lord, help us to move away from that stuff. Help us to remember that our citizenship is in heaven, that we belong to you, and these things don't matter. Lord, thank you for the gifts and the possessions you have given to us. Lord, help them not to possess us, Lord, but help us to possess you and your spirit. Lord, I do pray if there's anyone here that has yet to surrender their heart and life to you, they're not born again today. Lord, that you touch their heart. Help them to see their need for you and to be right with you. Thank you, Lord, for this time. We give you all the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.